As an avid podcast listener on various topics ranging from politics to nature, one of my favorites is The Nature Wanderer. The podcast is hosted by Paul Ferringer, who shares his adventures and stories from his wanderings through the natural world. He provides unique perspectives and insights into the wonders of nature. In the podcast, Paul takes us along on an adventure through natural habitats. Through his words, he allows me and other listeners to see the beauty and the wonders of the natural world. The Nature Wanderer delves into both the common and unusual sides of the natural world, offering a comprehensive exploration of nature that is sure to captivate nature enthusiasts. So if you're looking for a podcast that will take you on a journey through nature, provide insights into the natural world, and share captivating stories and adventures, I recommend tuning into The Nature Podcast. It's a great way to connect with nature and gain an in-depth knowledge about the wonders of the natural world. In fact, our mayor, who is still the mayor of this city, ran on a very, very bold and platform of tearing down 10,000 houses in 10 years, which was really the number that caught my attention. And I started scribbling some numbers on a napkin and figuring out what the public expenditure to actually remove through demolition that many buildings. We had a point to prove, which was too much material is lending up in the landfill. Too much money is of public dollars is being spent on this dead-end process of whole building demolition and burial in a landfill. I mean, I would say that anything that's reusable, like doors, moldings, windows, appliances, lighting, all of that stuff that could be reused is quite easily removed. Basically articulate an alternative, which was building deconstruction, and then to show the potential when you have an intention to save materials and divert materials from the landfill, what can actually be done on the tail end of it. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you businesses and organizations that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful organization is one that employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today we have with us Michael Gaynor, President, and Ian McDonald, Manager of Reuse Action, Reclaimed and Surplus Building Materials. They join us from Buffalo, New York. Welcome, Michael and Ian. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The EPA has estimated in 2018 around 600 million tons of construction and demolition debris is generated in the United States, of which about 145 million tons of these are sent to the landfills. How much of, like, say, the 600 million is demolition and how much of this do you think would be new construction waste and debris? 
I think it's probably about 50-50, although I, I think that construction people are more, you know, aware of it and trying to save money by not producing it. But I think it's, I think I've read somewhere, it's about 50-50. What are some of the reasons that these buildings actually get demolished? I can address that a little bit. And it goes to kind of how we, and the reasons why behind starting Buffalo Reuse 17 years ago when we did. Number one, demolition is kind of a natural part of the building industry and the building process. Buildings have a lifespan, and depending on the quality of the building materials and the maintenance over time, and you know the use of that building, and it's kind of all dictates what its lifespan will be in a specific area. Geographic area uses change within cities, towns, and municipalities. So you know hospitals expand, and businesses expand, and Houses just, their time runs out. Either they're not maintained well or they're built with inferior materials or there's a new use for the property. So all of which would result in demolition of a whole structure. But there's also a lot of material that ends up in the C&D waste stream that adaptive reuse of buildings or from renovations or reconstructions of existing structures as well. So we deal with uh, the reclamation of materials in both different areas, the demolition of whole buildings and from change of use. But to answer your question, why do buildings get demolished? Here in Buffalo, the reason we initiated Buffalo Reuse back in 2006 was because Buffalo, just like a lot of Rust Belt cities, is struggling with a vacancy issue. It started in the 1950s. There was a large flight from inner city centers and Buffalo, which was a city of about 650,000 in 1950, has lost population to where it's about, it is today, where the population stands around 260,000. So well over half the population was lost. So you have a lot of vacant structures. In a city like Buffalo that didn't have a lot of tax dollars, a lot of houses stood vacant for many, many years. But then there was some investment into the city to remove blighted buildings. It, was, it came in the form of a program funded by the state called Restore New York, which resulted in about six or 7,000 houses being demolished over the following 10 years. So that started around 2007. So from about 2007 to present day, they succeeded in demolishing about 7,000 houses. In fact, our mayor, who is still the mayor of this city, ran on a very, very bold and platform of tearing down 10,000 houses in 10 years, which was really the number that caught my attention when I was sitting in a cafe in 2005 here in, in Buffalo, and I started scribbling some numbers on a napkin and figuring out what the expenditure would actually be, the public expenditure to actually remove through demolition that many buildings. And that's just talking about finite tax dollars, at the time, the third poorest city in the country. And that really made me think there had to be a better way. How much was that number? What was the financial amount required? They estimated demolition costs at the time to be in the neighborhood of $15,000. That is a number that's a little askew today because it doesn't really consider all the costs demolition. It considers mostly just the actual demolition costs. But then you also have asbestos abatement. And you have then asbestos testing and asbestos air monitoring. But let's just say it's $15,000. We're looking at, you know, $150 million to basically tear down 10,000 houses. 
you think about that. And my question was, well, if I had $150 million to spend in the third or fourth poorest city in America, how would I spend that money? And it certainly wouldn't be to crunch up a bunch of houses and throw them in the landfill, which fortunately was the reality uh, for so many of those structures. But we capitalized on that in many different ways to at least curb some of those dollars or at least some of those materials and create an economic engine um, on the east side of Buffalo. And that was called Buffalo Reuse. So east side of Buffalo is where Reuse Action, your store, is uh, located. And that's where, sadly, the Tops shooting also took place. It's a relatively economically an area which has gone through a lot of economic hardship. So moving forward from 2006 is when you started to now, what do your deconstructions cost? I'll be honest, we don't do deconstruction of a whole building anymore. And there's a whole rationale for why we don't. We actually started in 2007 with a grant from Empire State Development so that you actually do research on the method of deconstruction that we were using. And it was a successful effort in terms of being able to dismantle whole buildings, to demonstrate to the world that we could do it faster and more efficiently than anywhere else, and to really demonstrate and show the potential of uh, deconstruction and salvage of building materials. I'll talk a little bit more later in the podcast about why our process has evolved and why we don't do whole building deconstruction anymore. But at the time, it made sense because we had a point to prove, which was too much material is lending up in the landfill. Too much money is of public dollars is being spent on this dead end process of whole building demolition and burial in a landfill. And what we wanted to show is that there was resource potential here that could be diverted and used as an economic engine for jobs creation, but also a source of building material resource that could help people to fix up their existing homes. And we're one block where we started Buffalo Reuse, we're one block from the tops where the shooting was because it was the epicenter of demolition. And I would also go further to say that it's not just an area that struggled with economic inequality but also a place where there's um, some of the highest concentrated poverty of anywhere in the state. We are the highest vacancy and highest poverty zip codes in the city of Buffalo, in these, these neighborhoods where we operate the businesses here on the east side. So yeah, the strategy was to basically articulate an alternative, which was building deconstruction, and then to show the potential when you have an intention to save materials and divert materials from the landfill, what can actually be done on the tail end of it. And that learning process has evolved and has gone through many morphs and, and changes as we've grappled with the economics. When we started, we had the subsidy from the New York State Empire State Development to do this research and development on this technique of deconstruction. Now we don't have that subsidy. And we've had to make wise business decisions based on the economic realities of our region. But the flip side of that is we haven't compromised in terms of our commitment to diverting large volumes and large masses of material. We're just taking the same labor force 
and focusing on different kinds of building materials that still would end up in the landfill. It's just we're not taking down whole houses to save those materials from the landfill. We're doing other things. So if you look at a house, the house that I am right now sitting in is about 145 years old. So if you were to deconstruct this house, which I hope you never have to because it's still in pretty good condition, but you know, in the value of the land at some point may be so high that it may call for its um, deconstruction or demolition. So the house has wood, it has glass, it has bricks, you have kitchen cabinets, beautiful wood floors. What are the things you can actually take out? I mean, I would say that anything that's reusable, like doors, moldings, windows, appliances, lighting, all of that stuff that could be reused is quite easily removed. I mean, the thing that you can't really uh, get at is plaster and lath, things like that. There's, you know, Michael might tell you more about that. Two by fours and things are not cost effective to get out of the walls, but you can get all the major, I guess it'll be the lumber pieces, um, you know, anything that could be reused. What do you think, Michael? We did a couple deconstruction projects where we saved pretty much every stick. The one most notable example was when we dismantled a 3,000 square foot house on Buffalo's west side for the extreme makeover project. Now we had 75 volunteers for that. So we were able to pry the house apart into large panels, lay those panels down on the ground, and then use volunteers to remove the flooring, to remove the floor joists, take down all of the chimneys, to save all the molding, to save all the hardwood, to save every two by four that was longer than six feet long, to save every stone from the foundation. You know, there was a, all the doors, all the, you know, the window sashes, all the plumbing fixtures, and then all the piping and wiring got recycled because that's all metal and scrap. What you had was a small amount of volume, but a large amount of mass of plaster and lath and insulation and smaller pieces and parts of wood. But that was in a situation where we had a lot of volunteers and I mean, the labor cost was infinitely smaller than it would be if, it, if we were just doing it with a group of staff. Um, there are still deconstruction operations in the country that take apart buildings by hand. They don't use the machine like we do. They take it apart by hand. They strip the roof by hand. They'll save all the skip sheathing boards. They strip the siding. They'll save all the siding sheathing. They'll save all the floor joists. But the situation that we're in this town or in this area of the country is that our disposal costs are some of the lowest in the entire country. So when you have a situation where your disposal costs are $250 to $300 a ton, when you invest additional labor, that makes sense because you're diverting a lot of tonnage. Well, when we started Buffalo Reuse, our disposal costs were $25 a ton, 10 times lower than some of the other markets in the country. So when you're looking at that, let's say I go through a house, and I save 10 tons of lumber. That's a lot of lumber. You know, that's all the floor joists, that's all the roof rafters, that's some of the wall studs, that's some of the flooring. 10 tons. What is the disposal savings there? $250? That's like nothing. And then, you know, you also have, you know, you have the trucking cost too. So that's not inconsequential. But at the time I was paying $100 a can, you know, for a 30 yard dumpster. And all of that debris could fit in about five dumpsters. So you're like, okay, you saved a thousand bucks. So it took six guys and gals because we had a 
co-ed crew. It took six people three or four days to completely dismantle a house and save all these pieces and parts. At the end of it, you save 10 tons of material, 1000 bucks. But what was your labor expense? It was 4000 bucks. So yeah, the value of these are hypothetical numbers. They're not real numbers because the labor burden is much different now. But you still have the material, right? So all the material goes to the store and it gets sold. And that generates revenue too. But a demolition contractor could come up in about four hours, have a house completely demolished right into the basement, and then another four to six hours have it loaded into a truck and on its way to Chautauqua Landfill. Those are the economic realities, which is why it doesn't, at the end of numerous years, we're like tearing, deconstructing residential houses, whole building deconstruction probably doesn't make the most sense in our marketplace because of the economic realities with low disposal costs and high labor costs. Yeah, they both contribute to the economics of it not being viable to deconstruct the whole house. But you mentioned that you wanted to prove a point to say that we can do deconstructions maybe a little bit longer than demolishing a house. What was your fastest deconstruction Well, one of the best case studies that we did is we took down nine houses in the city of Syracuse, nine very large houses. They were probably the smallest was 2,500 square feet. The biggest was probably 5,000 square feet. We took down nine or 10 houses with six people in four weeks, which was a pretty, that was paying all the staff prevailing wages. And we reclaimed an enormous amount of lumber, particularly all the floor joists, a lot of the flooring, all of the interior finishes, doors, cabinetry, windows, bathroom fixtures, molding, appliances, all of that material. And then we partnered with a demolition contractor who then took the remaining debris. Once we took those big panels and dropped them on the ground, ripped off all the good stuff as quickly as we could, they took the remaining debris, the roofing, the plaster, the lab, you know, maybe flooring, like carpeting and stuff like that. And they crunched it up and put that in the dumpsters. It was a lot of material and it was a great case study. Smaller crews in niche markets will spend four weeks to take down one house. We did nine houses in about the same time as a normal crew would take down one house. So we demonstrated that you can do it faster. The challenges are just the economics. And even though whole building, I like to distinguish between these two, whole building deconstruction doesn't make a lot of economic sense in our marketplace. We still do a ton of soft stripping and salvage, which is going in and not rem- and removing everything that's salvageable that's not structural. So no walls, no floors, no roof, but interior flooring, interior moldings, interior appliances and cabinetry and bathroom fixtures and tile. All of that material can be salvaged, and then the wrecker comes in and takes care of the rest. And then we focus our attention on the buildings that it does make sense in. Factories, warehouses, gymnasium floors, barns. I mean, you think about a barn is all wood. There's no plaster. There's Sometimes there's no roofing. It's just metal or tin roof. And we can get a huge volume of material in a third of the cost with a lot less disposal. And then we're on to the next big building with a lot of material. And also in terms of impact, you probably have a bigger impact when you take down a big building you know, where you get the steel and you get the 
big panes of glass or whatever else. Yes, uh, I think you ought to point out too, like deconstruction of a building stick by stick is never going to be cost effective no matter how you do it. You're just never going to be able to recover from the labor costs from that. And I think, unfortunately, that's the view most people have of deconstruction is that you're saving every, you know, nail in the house. And I think I've done calculations where you can get 50 to 75% of the building, you know, with the way we do it with the green hybrid deconstruction, but um, you throw away 25%. But if you can do more buildings, you've made a bigger impact than peeling apart one building piece by piece. (laughs) It's just never going to make sense economically. And, you know, sustainability is all about choices, right? If we have to make a sustainable choice in our business, if you're going to say, I'm going to be a purist and I'm going to do full deconstruction, and what if you go out of business, like you're left with doing nothing? There's materials that are just utterly unrecyclable, you know, roofing shingles, actually even a plate glass you can't recycle. It's just there's no way to, the chemistry of it is so different, even batch to batch, that if you try to mix them, you get like something that looks like a meteorite when you're done. So there's a lot of materials like plaster, I don't know what else is there, the asbestos, things like that, that are just never going to be recyclable. That was, you know, a lot of what our push was to figure out a way to do it faster and more efficient. And it's not that you can't be done or that it doesn't make sense. There are cases where it does make sense. It's just, you know, we don't get any subsidies anymore. Like, let's say I was getting funded by New York State to do job training. Then then I'm accomplishing two different things, right? In that case, now it does make sense because I'm using this unwanted house as a vehicle to train young people, young adults, and I'm getting this source of valuable material. We don't do that right now. We do it a little bit, but more informally. And I've just made the economic decisions that make the most sense right now where we're at. We started recycling roof insulation because it has a huge ecological impact. The production of polyisocyanate foam and what we found was that roofers all over the country are just dumping this stuff. It's very voluminous. It's not a lot of weight, but it takes up a lot of landfill volume. And the long-term thermal rating on reclaimed foam insulation is stays almost the same over time for as long as they've been studying it. So we started recycling that, and now we have a warehouse, 10,000 square foot warehouse full of the material that we sell to farmers and industrial companies generates a large amount of revenue for the organization and allows us to do more and more efficiently. Another example is a gymnasium floor. So you have maple gym floors that I can go with three people and spend two days, so maybe 20 labor hours. So that's 60 labor hours total. Remove a 20,000 square foot gymnasium floor and divert 100,000 pounds, 50 tons from the landfill in two days. You know, that's not material that is liquid that's going to sell in a week or two weeks, but it is material that almost definitely would have gone to the landfill because people just aren't saving it. You know, that's another example of where we've changed our focus ever so slightly. We still are focusing on diverting material out of from the landfill. We're still focusing on creating jobs and develop environmental protection and on the reclamation of materials. It's just instead of spending a week to get 10 tons of material, I spent two days to get 50 tons of material. So it's like, 
Those are the types of decisions that make sense. And 50 tons of material, which will actually sell and be reused. It will sell. Well, we had about five years ago when we started doing gymnasium floors, we had 60,000 square feet of gym floor. And I think we have about 1,500 square foot of that inventory left in the store. And it's because we really just didn't market it much through COVID. Uh, We were selling mostly insulation and selling mostly doors, windows, cabinets, fixtures during COVID. Lumber sells, but again, it's about tweaking our purpose and our focus. And I'll have Ian talk a little bit about what we do to add value, which is, you know, there was a time when we were selling two by sixes and two by eights and two by tens for 50 cents or a dollar. And now we sell it for 15 to $30 a square foot by taking that material, which is green and reclaimed and unique and old growth and tweaking it ever so slightly and turning it into a product that is unique and green and not cookie cutter like you find at Home Depot. And Ian, why don't you talk a little bit about what you do a lot? Yeah, when you talk about the gym floor, you probably should realize it's not taken apart again, stick by stick. They come in in four, like approximately four foot by 16 foot panels that I know we've reused them in uh, buildings where you just lay them back down, actually, join the edges together, and it makes a beautiful gym floor, not perfectly seamed together. <laughs> but you have to be able to work with it in a way that, you know, if you took that all that gym floor apart, it would be like a pile of pickup sticks the size of the building. You know, you know by reusing it as a big panel, rather than little pieces, you can get more out of it with a lot less labor. <laughs> we use it also in case of gym floor to build tables and counters and things like that. That's probably the smaller part of what we, you know, money that we earn from it, but it is something that people like. If you like <laughs> the look of a gym floor for your kitchen table, I've done half a dozen of those so far. We can also add value back into barn beams. I don't know, we've probably made 200 fireplace mantles out of those. And those are something that you would, uh, they're unique. There's no two that are the same. They come from Western New York wood, you know, so they have a little bit of a story. That's part of the shtick that I do is try to tell people, you know, this is a you know, 200 years of growth on a tree that was a lot bigger than that, that was uh, count the rings and do all that stuff. And that, that people respond to that, actually. I mean, we have kind of a joke is that sometimes I'll go into, say, Target or, you know, one of the big stores and you'll see something that is like a, a rustic barn table or barn frame or something like that. And it's sort of gray. And they said, well, that's not the real thing. If you want something that actually was here before the country was founded, well, we've got it. You know, people respond to that kind of stuff. And I know I do anyway. I'm kind of a nerd for those things. Stories sell. I mean, they're very provocative and and very intriguing to people when they not only get a material that's socially, not socially, but is environmentally responsible, but also has a cool story. Like our business world has become so homogenized and so, you know, cookie cutter that you go into Home Depot and they even have reclaimed looking wood these days, you know, so you can buy whole panels of wood that looks like used wood, but really isn't. But people know the difference. You know, a lot of people want materials in their homes or in their businesses that tell a story and that uh, are unique. 
when we build things like uh, tables and things like that, part of the, I guess, the shtick of it is, is that they're thick pieces of old wood. So, you know, oftentimes I tell people, they say, can you make it a little thinner? I said, no, the whole reason to make it thick is that you can see that this was a cut of wood that you'll never see again in mine, my children's lives, their children, like a long, long, many generations from now. When you talked about the insulation, when it is used in a new construction, do they need any kind of certifications for the city to approve it? And are you able to provide that? I mean, I think this is a problem in the larger, like if you were to take this to much larger level than us, is that things are on spec. And uh, if our stuff is not on spec, I don't think, you know, big construction companies would use it. <laughs> I'm just going to say why I asked that question, because I wanted to use yours for my roof ceiling and my builder slash general contractor has been super supportive to all the whims and fancies that I have in building our new house. I don't think Michael knows so we're building a new house, which is all sustainable. And this thing he said that if he used it, it needs some sort of a certification and we couldn't use it. Here's the thing is the reason that we have reclaimed insulation is because a lot of the roofing companies, they won't warranty their roof. There's not new insulation, which is kind of bonkers, but I get it. You know, they have universal standards for quality and for inspection, and they want it to be a consistent surface. And because also the roofing industry changes. And the other thing is if people just throw insulation over you know, roofing over existing insulation, the roofer doesn't have any way of guaranteeing that material was dry and protected and stuff. When they pulls it, pull it off, they know, you know, the wet damaged stuff goes in to the garbage and the good stuff be reclaimed. So there might be valid reasons behind it, but I think that a lot of it is just sensely, senselessly thrown away. There was also a long time, we actually, it's an interesting story, we took down an old railroad depot and we labeled all the parts of all the walls and all the trusses. Uh, it was an extraordinary building be, built in, uh, when was it, Ian? Was it the late 19th century? 18? It's like the 1880s. Yeah, it was a great transfer station in uh, the Finger Lakes. We took it apart. We labeled the pieces. I just ran into the owner, the guy that bought the kit from us, who bought it and is currently constructing it right now in Colorado in the desert. And uh, he went through the whole code process and they allowed him to use the trusses, but they wouldn't allow him to use the wall structure, basically because it's not stamped in engineered lumber. You know, a unique challenge to meet building codes of today because there's not a standard for what that material is now that it's 150, 200 years old. Of course, Ian and I know from a very practical sense that there are buildings in Europe that are 600 years old. And we also know from a very practical sense, we don't need science, that a lot of these timbers and a lot of this lumber is superior to the, the building materials that you would get today. But there are still, you're talking to Joe Schmo, building inspector, they only know what the rules are that's written in the code book. And they don't have 200-year-old lumber specifications uh, for a new construction today. So that means that you have to get a specialist that can grade the lumber and basically put their stamp of approval on a timber that's old and, you know, and vintage. 
We do get customers quite often that come in looking for, say, two-by-fours, and we might have 120-year-old two-by-fours. Now, now you wouldn't use those to hold up your porch because the wood is too beautiful, but <laughs> you get such small amounts of it you know, in the total scheme of things. Yeah, that's the, an issue that I've said, too, to people. I said, I don't know if this would pass inspection if you did actually use it for, even though you can look at it and it's, it's a stronger, harder wood than anything you're going to grow today or get today. And two by four of that time was actual two inches by four inches. Now it is what? One and a half by three and a half. It took up a lot of bandwidth in the industry, actually, because we, members of the Building Material Reuse Association, we used to present regularly at their annual conferences, or maybe they were biannual, I can't remember, but uh, it used to take up a lot of bandwidth. People always debating about it. They're like, oh, how can we use all this lumber that we're saving for structural use? Like, And from an economic standpoint, why would you want to? Because, you know, it's silly to, you know, in the reuse industry, there are some materials that are premium that you see a lot that you can sell for more because there is no equivalent, right? So stained glass windows, leaded glass windows, some of the old ornate doors and architectural elements, all that stuff, you can sell for a lot more money because there's no comparable in the industry or in the marketplace right now for that product, right? So you really can charge whatever you want. But when it comes to lumber, you know, more utilitarian things, you know, that people could get in, you know, something to replace it with some comparable at Home Depot or Lenko Lumber or whatever, they don't want to pay full price. They want to pay half price. And the one that they buy in Home Depot is tried and true. Their framers know, like zoom, 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 how to cut it. Right. So it's probably more value to use those joists, the columns, the beams, whatever you have, and do what Ian does, make beautiful things out of it. For instance, Ian, what would you make out of it? I mean, the biggest product that we make out of old barn beams or fireplace mantles, I mean, we've done well over 200 of them now. They're all out there. But they, you know, naturally, the color is something you'd never see in a new piece of wood. I don't care how you stain it. Some of them, we have a beam right at the moment that has a family name carved into it that says 1875. I mean, these are the little details that you know, that make it more unique than anything else you could get today. It certainly would not be used for like holding up your porch or anything like that. The wood's just too too pretty for them. Yeah. And here's the thing is you take a two by eight floor joist, right? Two by eight piece of old growth hemlock. If I went and bought a two by eight today, Douglas fir or SPF or whatever, maybe I'd pay 30 or 40 bucks for it. And let's say that it's 20 board feet. I could take that piece of two by eight and slice it in half and turn it into a six inch piece of flooring. So I get four board feet out of it that I sell for 10 or 15 or who knows how many dollars per square foot. So it's a value added product. You get more of the character extracted from that piece of wood. And it's something that you want to use for aesthetic finishes. You don't want to hide it in a wall. I go through all this effort to salvage this piece of wood from a house where I've got 150-year-old, tight, old-grain wood. Please don't tell me you're going to bury it and make a floor out of it, like a floor structure. Like, please put it somewhere where people can appreciate it, where you can tell stories about it. You know, like, that's what we want you to do with our wood. 
Well, we did that one job where we uh, turned, it was that roof from a building in Chicago, that old yellow pine and cut it in half and made it, it was about 7,000 square feet of yellow pine floor. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. You won't see that, you know, even if you get pergo or whatever with a painted wood grain on it, it's just never going to be the same. It's never going to look like it. So the job that you guys do, like many jobs in the construction industry, has many hazards. One of the main hazards that comes to mind, the minute you mention asbestos and the lead in the paints, who even knows what else was used in even the nails or the soldering. You know, there are so many other toxicities or toxic elements in the structures. How do you guys manage that? The biggest thing is before we can take down a building or even do interior demolition at a building anymore, we have to test for asbestos prior. So we can't get a permit for building demolition without an asbestos survey. Any asbestos that is detected um, and in, in excess of a certain threshold needs to be abated by you know asbestos abatement professionals, not our crew. You know, we actually are doing a full house rehab in North Buffalo on Amherst Street. The, the plaster was all asbestos containing. So the contractors came through, they don't they abated all of it. You know, they're all equipped with Tyvek suits and respirators and, and all kinds of safety equipment, you know, and they even hosed it down the house afterwards. So our guys come in and they've got a clean slate to work with. You know, the other hazards, lead paint's a hazard. It's less of a hazard for a grown human as it is for I would tell you too that the bigger issues with lead paint are breathing the dust from sanding it or if it's very flaky and of course we're all adults you don't want it around children but there are lead safe practices you can do to remove it you know you don't use heat guns you use like peel and strip that you put a paper on with it and peel the stuff off and then you double and triple bag it to get rid of it. This is something that we talk about quite a bit is if there was like an outlaw of any selling anything with lead paint on it, well, that would put a big chunk of our business out. But there are very safe ways to deal with that stuff. And, and in the end, all is that those things, if they weren't sold, were going to be thrown away anyway. That's where they would go. They're going to go into the landfill. So, And then the only other potential hazard that I think we'll see in the future, that fiberglass is probably a lot more hazardous than people think, just the glass charts. But again, the majority of the houses that we deconstructed during the Buffalo Reuse days didn't have any insulation. So I'd say maybe 10 or 15% of the houses that we deconstructed had insulation of any kind in them and if it was anything it was a little bit of fiberglass bats here or there or some cellulose blown in the attic and that's about it one thing that does come up and we've been reading about it more than it, i haven't seen nobody's told us about it but the epa they keep talking about banning the sale of any faucets and things with lead in them so that if you had a faucet and we're going to resell it you would have to test it using like x-ray fluorescence or something exotic like that to make sure that there's no lead in that brass that it's made out of i should confess i used to be a scientist so i have a little understanding of this but used to be yeah sort of <laughs> But the amount of time that water spends in the spout, the retention time is so small that I don't know anybody that puts their mouth right on the thing and turns it on and the amount of lead would be very small. Most of the lead, I think that 
people get is from the old lead pipes out in the streets and solder joints and things like that. So we're sort of waiting to see. I mean, we kind of jokingly said, well, we're not supposed to ever sell a faucet because nobody knows how much lead potentially is in it. So there are two parts to your business, the deconstruction and the store. And how do you price things? It's such a tough thing, right? Because if you just say cost plus, it basically is would be a price at which if it's too low, nobody wants to buy. If it's too high, nobody wants to buy. How do you price it? There is no too low price. I was going to say, yeah, there's no too low. <laughs> and I would say there's some customers that think every price is too high, no matter where it's at. But that's okay. That's a different subject. It's quite of an adventure. It's a bit of a matter of feel more than anything is what the market will bear, what seems fair. Us guys working in the store spend an enormous amount of time going online. What do other people sell these things for or something similar? You know, what would it be worth at a antique shop? You know, things like that. So finding the actual price point for things. And I will say we get it wrong sometimes, but <laughs> over the years, we've gotten better at it. You sell primarily to individuals or small contractors who are able to use your sinks, your pipes, your lights, your lamps. You know, I've been to your store several times and every time I'm so fascinated by the number of things that, you know, you carry and how you manage to make it completely reusable in a home where it matches. I'll just say that we don't have a stereotypical or, a, you know, any kind of specific customer. We get all walks of life. We get people that are in the theater industry. We get artists. We get you know, homeowners that are trying to fix up their houses with materials that are unique and historical and relevant to the houses that they have. We have people that are building new houses that want unique elements to incorporate into their houses. So then we get contractors that are getting requests from their clients to do unique things. We get commercial clients that are looking for unique finishes for their restaurants and bars and and tables and all kinds of things. So we really, every day, are dealing with all kinds of different people. The reason we started was to help people specifically in our neighborhood make the necessary repairs to their house. And we still, the probably the most frequent customer to the store is the homeowner or the refugee or the immigrant that's new to this country and Every, that's trying to fix up a house on the east side of Buffalo or anywhere in the city and needs to do it as affordably as possible. People say, what do you do with all those old wooden window sashes? Like, well, there's a lot of people that cannot afford to put in a $180 or $200 vinyl replacement window, and they're wanting to fix it up because it's the affordable option. And then you have the, you have the purists yeah, that come in because they want a wooden window because it's technology that still is exceptional when you have a properly fit storm, even in the context of a thousand dollar each Marvin windows from, you know, Wisconsin. I mean, you should point out too that the old houses in the city, people have this assumption, oh, this is a cheap, you know, old house, but try to find a 36 by 90 inch door. You're talking about thousands of dollars to have a custom door like that made. And you won't find that in, uh, you know, one of the big box stores. There's, they just don't make things like that. As a homeowner, there are challenges to find the exact dimensions to fit what you have. How does one navigate through that process? 
we teach a lot of the customers on the fly how to, <laughs> they'll come in and say, I need a standard bathroom door. And I said, there's no such thing. <laughs> you need to measure it this way. And unfortunately, we do not have the ability to keep like an inventory system with sizes and styles and things. So it's a very self-service, you know, environment. And we tell them, you know, this is how you measure it, measure it from this side to this side and this to top to bottom. And then we'll point you towards it, give you a tape measure and then come and look for it. It can usually provide some advice too, but it's definitely a self-service thing, but we don't mind helping people. You know, if they don't know exactly what they're doing, we can give them a little bit of a education in it. If you had to put a number from inception to today, what would be a number that you have diverted from the landfills? Each house that was taken apart of estimated is about 40 tons of wood. <laughs> so, and how many houses were taken apart in Buffalo reuse days? I mean, we probably took down close to 100 houses during Buffalo reuse days. And then, you know, a lot of barns and warehouses and additional structures and cleanouts and donated items and salvaged items, and roof insulation. I mean, we probably sell close to 60 semi-loads of foam insulation a year. And that's not a lot of tonnage, but it is a lot of volume. There's an argument to be made that salvage diverting volume is you know, just as important. We're running out of landfill space. The ground can take as much tonnage. Meanwhile, we're gutting a house right now over on Lincoln Parkway. We filled one dumpster and had 13 tons in it yesterday. It's a lot of, that's all plaster. And that's mostly earthen material that is going into the landfill, I feel horrible when we miss the opportunity to divert like we did to that building down on uh, the Buffalo River that Savarino did eight years ago, where there were four inch by 14 inch floor joists, 12 inches on center, and it all went into the landfill because it had asbestos contamination. Like when we were courting the salvage of that building and that material, that's the stuff that bothers me and that's troublesome. It's also troublesome when there's not a mandate from the local city or municipality to make sure that every house before it's demolished gets salvaged. That's something that's low-hanging fruit. It's very attainable. When I go to pull a permit, I have to have a red line removed from the permit that says that I've tested for asbestos. We could have a similar red line for salvage. Like when you have a contractor come through and salvage the house and sign off on this form, then we'll give you a demolition permit. It's quite simple. And there are contractors that can do it, but that's a policy initiative that hasn't been pioneered yet in this town. Yet any house pre-1950 in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, needs to be deconstructed. But it's a different marketplace out there, a different set of economic conditions, and there's contractors out there that have been doing deconstruction and salvage for a lot longer than we have. So there's an infrastructure there that can support a deconstruction ordinance where we don't have that same infrastructure here. And a lot of what's holding it up is literally the, the economics of disposal here. So that's really the biggest challenge. And I think there are two parts to it. One is the economics of disposal and the cost of landfills. And probably the third component would be policy initiatives and energy towards a very simple solution like you're suggesting. The amount that we have diverted from landfills is like an infinite 
infinitesimal small amount compared to the, you know, when you look at the EPA numbers, I don't remember it offhand, but it's in the million metric ton range that building debris gets thrown away. So what we're diverting is a tiny, tiny fraction of that. But the flip side of that is that we've created a million dollars annually just in our own little circle of $1.5 million this year of economic money flow because we're taking stuff that otherwise would have been thrown away. And we've created 18 to 20 jobs for people, 11 to 12 full-time jobs and another five or six part-time jobs. So not to mention all the other people that are doing little micro enterprises that are born out of our materials. So you get crafters that are coming in to do value-added stuff. You have artists that are taking materials and creating art on it. You have designers that are coming in and taking pieces and parts and incorporating them into new structures and new buildings. So there's a lot of ripple effect from that uh, work and a lot of positive impact, even though when you look at the whole mountain of disposal that's happening in just this city alone, we're barely scratching the surface in terms of what the potential is. Oh, yes. I, I mean, I certainly feel good about what we've done, the amount of uh, waste. And the other thing is in like the Green Building Council, there's a saying that the building that's still standing is the greenest building. So any new, quote, green materials, new green buildings, if you look at them, they're really not as green as rehabbing an old building or reusing an item. I mean, even recycling is sort of next on the list of you know, if you can take an item and use it as is rather than using energy again to recycle it, you're doing better. And what you're trying to say is any virgin material is never as green as a material which is being reused, repurposed. I mean, that's well known with uh, like aluminum cans is it's much, much better for the environment to recycle them than it is to get new aluminum from bauxite. <laughs> it's Thank you so much, Kevin and Ian, for coming on the show. Thank you for all the work that you've done and you continue to do in this area. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity. And you can always have people give us a call and donate any materials that they have. Um, we do free pickups. We salvage building materials. We still take down whole buildings if it makes sense. And come into the store Tuesday and Thursday, 9 to 4, we're open to the public. Hopefully someday we'll have more hours, but for now that's uh, what the public hours are. And your website is? ReuseAction.com. Thank you again, Ian and Michael. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Kurian is our marketing assistant. Ketan Karat is our podcast editor. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Prastricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.